All right. Thank you, Pastor. And thank you, congregation. Today's message is, hey, church, wake up. <laughs> now, don't take that personally. That was not intended to be personally. It's, a, it's written in the Bible, so I'm allowed to get away with that. All right. So our master text today is Revelation uh, chap- chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. But before, um, before we do that, I want to revisit chapter 1 because it's important for us to get a good understanding of the context and the backdrop uh, because those will be relevant in the message today. Um, nine weeks ago, I believe it was, I, I, was uh, I gave a message here from the book of Revelation from the church of Ephesus. And we got into the backdrop there. So if you want to, and you don't have to, but you can open to Revelation chapter 1. I think I have the relevant uh, information here on the slide. The occasion is the risen and glorified Lord has appeared uh, to the Apostle John. The year, although it can't be uh, labeled with precision, but approximately A.D. 90 to A.D. 95. So to put that... Uh, in perspective, it had been roughly 60 years since Jesus' resurrection and glorification. 60 years is a, a long time. I haven't been around that long, so I really wouldn't know, but I, I'm close to, to knowing. All right. So the political and the religious climate is what's important. This is something that, that brings the relevance from Sardis to Columbus. Domitian was the ruler and the emperor from 81 to 96, and failure to worship Domitian is a punishable offense. However, it's not stipulated per se that Judaism or Christianity was outlawed per se, but upon demand, the the government could enact, you need to worship Domitian and you need to do it now, and what does Judaism and Christianity say? Love the Lord your God, worship no other. There is no other God before you. So in essence, the church was underground. Church tradition says, Tertullian was a church father. He said that at some point John ended up on Patmos, which was a penal colony. It was where it was like the cancel culture of the Roman Empire for that day. Who were they canceling? They were canceling John because John was fulfilling the great commission of preaching a balanced gospel to a dying world. He's incensed Rome. Church tradition said that his punishment for so doing was to be dipped in a vat of hot oil only to be pulled out to find that it did no harm and so they sent him to Patmos. That's the church tradition. Now, that's not in the Bible, but that's what the church father has, has written. Um, so it was the Lord's Day, and I think this is important. Jesus rose on the Lord's Day, the, the Sunday. This day is the Lord's Day. John had set him up himself up on the Lord's Day. He says, John was in the Spirit. Praise God, that's what we need to be in, and especially in the Lord's Day. And you know, if you, if you where you are according to the Word, and you're doing what the Word tells you to do, you, you can find that there's this great synchronicity here. He was where he was supposed to be. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And on the Lord's Day, the Lord appeared to him 
in a vision, just as he appeared to them in reality back on Resurrection Day. Praise God. So that's our backdrop. But what we really need to look at is what's the purpose. The purpose that you get from, from chapter 1 is there's a sense of urgency. Jesus is on a critical mission, and his purpose statement is this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, write what you see in a book and write it to the seven churches. Would you all stand with me now as we uh, honor God in the reading of his word? This is our master text, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have a few, still a few in, names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. Sardis. They had a reputation. These are Jesus' words. They have, you, He said, have a reputation for being alive. He's talking to the whole church of them. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So that brings me to my first sermon point today. Ouch. Oh, you're going to need more than a Band-Aid to get over that, right? You're going to need paramedics, Gage and DeSoto. They're going to have to come and do some resuscitation with those paddle thingies and the jelly, and they're going to have to do some work here. You're not going to get over that. And you know what's going to add injury to the insult? Of these seven letters, the church tradition says, and there's really good biblical evidence as, as well but, uh, in, in Paul's letters, they were circular. That meant that every church that got a letter got to read the letters from uh, the other churches that got a letter. That meant that these dirty laundry, the soiled garments of Sardis, and their zombie-like state was up on the church bulletin board for all of southern Indiana. Or in their region, Asia Minor. But we're going to connect Indiana soon. So how would you like that? that that'd be a blast, wouldn't it? To watch the local news. This isn't like global, empire-wide, but the local news. And tonight, um, news-breaking story here. A uh, local church down in Columbus thinks they're all that, but Jesus says they're dead. <laughs> and, and it's your church that you're going to. 
And then he says, well, the people entered, they're dead too. Uh, that's not what you want on the local news story. But what if he got even more specific and he, and he got down to the individual? It'd be like reading the obituary. All right, you read the obituary column and it says, okay, that's the obituary column. And it says, now coming next week is Brent. Wait, wait a second. How'd they get that print? Well, that's the kind of shock factor that this letter would have had to them. Shocked out of their shoes, no doubt. I mean, some people may have expected it and I have, a, have an idea who they might be. But there's a shock factor here. So as we turn the page and get, a, you know, we have a little icebreaker. Things are going to get a little tough now. So as we turn the page, let's do so, each of us considering this, what would Jesus say if he wrote the letter to you? What would your letter have in it? What would my letter have in it? Because I'm, I'm by far not exempt from any of this. I'm here in the audience with you, believe me. All right. Well, diagnosing the symptoms. You know, the paramedics were on the scene and they got them stabilized. What are the symptoms here? Well, you know, in, in some of the other letters, the symptoms was you're under persecution or opposition. That, he just didn't say a thing about that. Not to Sardis. There's no hint of it. Another church, he says, well, you've got doctrinal problems. But he didn't really specify that. What he does say is they have soiled garments. That's the Old Testament. In their time, they didn't call it the Old Testament. That was their scripture. And that meant, soiled garments meant sin. And it meant unrepentant sin. They were into dead works. I'm going to go ahead and get Hebrews 6. Uh, this was the foundational scripture that Pastor had for an excellent eight-week series on a solid biblical foundation. And thank you for doing that, Pastor. As a matter of fact, that foundation um, saved my life, and it'll save your life as well. All right, so going over to Hebrews, um, it's in the New Testament, I'm pretty sure. There's no pressure here, right? All right. It's not so much what they did, because I don't want to have to figure it out. You know, if I have to get there and use my imagination and triangulate, well, what was it they did? Well, they had a reputation for being alive. We'll look at the definition of reputation later, but first things first here. It said they had soiled garments, which is unrepentant sin, but... In Hebrews, we read chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. That's, that's kindergarten. They had a reputation for being that, everything. But they, were, they had to go back to kindergarten. Back to go. They were in, embroiled in sin. Dead works. The dead works could be argued in, in a couple of ways. It could be argued that dead works that they that that the Hebrews writer said um, to that was the foundational to get away from the dead works. That's Christianity 101. That the dead works was going back to uh, religion instead of relationship. Christ brought a relationship. He put an end to religion. 
The dead works of the law were dead because they were no longer needed. Christ did the finished work. And that is a relationship. Amen. Right? Amen. It doesn't matter how many times you, 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 you bow down or how many dollars you put in the plate. No. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're spiritually dead. And every work you do is a dead work. But here's another part about dead works. If you're disconnected from Christ and you've got your faith in religion and not in the person of Jesus Christ, are you going to be doing good works or are you going to be doing dirty works? If you're disconnected from Jesus, you're going to be doing sinful works. Your, your clothes are soiled in dead works. Christianity 101, and yet Sardis, who had the reputation, was actually in kindergarten. Soiled garments are dead works. And uh, we also hear him say, wake up. That means they're asleep. They've fallen asleep at the wheel. What's the wheel? The wheel's the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Falling asleep at the wheel, waking up, not doing their job. Job number one, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Bear good fruit. These are the good things, but they'd fallen asleep. They had lethargy regarding the gospel. They had complacency. And I think the absence of conflict because it's not mentioned, maybe that's part of their reputation for being alive. Hey, they got it easier down in Sardis. They're not cracking the whip on them down there so bad. They're alive. But Jesus says they're dead, and I say they're complacent because they have an absence of conflict. It's been brought up, discussed for, for centuries that the persecution of the church becomes the very nutrient of growth for the church. We see it in Africa, we see it in China, and now we see it in Afghanistan. The numbers of people that are going to, to Christ in Afghanistan are increasing because they've seen the brave and courageous witness of those that would not renounce their faith, but made the ultimate sacrifice. That is a gospel message. Yes, they're rewarded in heaven. They're alive today. Praise God. I believe it so much that I'll get in line to get what they have. And you know what? If we pretend that we're not going to die, we're all going to die. It's given unto man to die. No one gets out of it. Jesus didn't get out of it. I won't get into Scripture. There's a couple of people that seem to have gotten out of it, but I think they may be coming back. No, I'm serious. I think, it's a, I think Elijah and Enoch and... And uh, a brother of, uh, and I were talking about it at breakfast. He's seen the same thing. And I think these two witnesses may be coming back. It's appointed to human beings to die once. So we're not going to get out of it. And the last point I have here about falling asleep at the wheel, it's A.D. 95. Sixty years have gone by. You know, those first Christians would have been passionate. They would have been, it would have been right under their feet. And then they had babies and then their babies had babies. And now we get every 40 years or so in the book of Judges, things went off track. 
And that other generation that didn't have to live with it or wasn't a part of straightening out the mess that the one before did, they fall asleep and the same cycle repeats. And repentance is the only way out of it. Repentance is the only way out of a quagmire like that. All right. Well, the late um, Warren Wiersbe had said that the church at Sardis would be better off if there had been some suffering for it had grown comfortable and content and was living on its past reputation. Sometimes we see that the past um, has a way of catching up if it's not maintained. So there's maintenance involved. Um, so they're on life support. What happened? Well, I can tell you not for sure exactly uh, what they did do. I will go back to Hebrews 6. I know what they didn't do because, you know, sins of omission are just, sometimes they're this, this, the more deceptive ones, right? They were stuck in dead works. It says that they need to leave dead works and they need to go into instructions about laying on of hands. I think they, if they're caught doing the other, they probably weren't doing enough of the laying on of hands. Uh, they weren't focused on what is, are the true aspects of the eternal judgment. They were living the life of the world. Jesus appears to them, and in his hands he has seven stars and seven spirits of God. The seven stars, as we know from chapter 1, are the seven angels, but that's a symbol for the leadership of each of the churches. Jesus doesn't need to write letters to angels. He's already plugged in there, right? He wrote the letter to people. People's the one that's got the problem here, not the angels. So the seven stars are the seven angels, and, by whole, or, and the seven angels are... And, I guess we call our leaders, our elders, and our pastors, your angels, according to this. So it would be, we have our own angels in this group. It's the leadership. And in that line of leadership, Jesus holding it says, I'm the head of the church. If I got your leader in my hand, then I'm the head of the church. But that's Christianity 101. Colossians 1.18, you can go there if you want. You don't need to, I assure you. That Paul, and in multiple, multiple places, you will find that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. You know, alive but dead, the stuff of comic books and B-rated movies. That's why a late Ray Steadman, evangelist Ray Steadman, referred to Sardis as the church of the zombies. Yet they had a reputation for being alive. It's important here to note this picture of the, of the leadership, because by holding them, he's implying that they got detached from the head, and anything that gets detached from its head dies. A church body, a human body, and it takes a little while for a chicken body, but eventually they go down. <laughs> I've seen it. But eventually, it dies, and then pretty quick. Right? Jesus holds the other symbol, the seven spirits of God, which are the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
Oh, I'm getting excited about that one. Sevenfold, the full Holy Spirit, not quenching him. Well, you know, if you got a fire and you put water on it, it's only part of the fire it could have been. You got to have enough fuel and you got a fire, let that thing blaze. You can't quench the spirit and stay alive because a body that quenches the spirit becomes dead. I said only a few had not soiled their garments in Revelation 3, 4. There was a remnant. I think perhaps they may have been the only reason that that lampstand hadn't already been removed. But now how many were left? 10% of them with not soiled? 5%? I don't know. You remember Abraham, he pleaded with God over Sodom and Gomorrah, will, will you wipe it out for 10? And he said, I won't wipe it out for 10. Oh, please don't get mad at me. But would you wipe it out for five? Someone was keeping the lampstand on. There were a few there and they were holding their spot. Yet, as a body, they were as good as dead, according to Jesus. And if you look at the picture of this country church with the beautiful stained glass, when the spirit wanes and Jesus pulls the plug, it can go from its glory days um, to, uh, to the dead days where it's just, it's no longer a thing. There was supposed to be a reputation for being alive, but they are actually dead. Jesus said that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And, you know, the Bible is talking about Sardis, but the Bible is not only relevant for all times, it applies to all people of all times and all places and all circumstances. So whether you grasp its relevance or not doesn't change the fact that the Bible applies to you. You'll change your position and it'll set you free. But the truth is always the truth in the Lord. The Bible is relevant to you and the Bible does apply to you. And what was written then is written and still stands today. Amen. Looking at the current state of affairs, I would say the message to Sardis applies to our situation as much or maybe even more so than it did to Sardis. You know, there's a saying among preachers and evangelists, and I think pastors probably heard this, in order to communicate the intended meaning, the biblical meaning, we have to take it, take the text and the message of the text from their, from their town to our town. That's the work. You've got to read it and understand it. Take it from Sardis and you've got to bring it to Columbus. So let's bring it to Columbus. Let's, let's get a little closer. Is America a church of the living dead? Hey, that's one thing. We can all hide under America. But what about Indiana? That's getting a little closer to home, right? Is Indiana a church of the living dead? Well, you have a reputation for being alive. We live in the Bible Belt. Doesn't that make you feel good? Look, they painted Indiana, the, the little part we're in, they painted it red. Yeah. Woo! 
We have a reputation for being alive. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's just wonderful stuff. I've, <laughs> I've seen some maps that had, had it colored nor all the way and it even included Fort Wayne and I kind of laughed about that one. It's, but I've seen the map, you know, there's not just one map. Some of them don't have Indiana at all. Some have all of Indiana, but this one had a little spray paint right in that sock where we live. And I, I think Columbus is right on the border. And no, I didn't tamper with the picture to make it come out on the border here. Now, I, it says we have a reputation, but Merriam-Webster says a reputation. This is Merriam-Webster. It's not uh, dictionary.com. This is the good dictionary, right? It says recognition by other people. Well, I don't care what other people think about me. If Jesus doesn't think the best of me, then I better work on my relationship with Jesus. It says that it's a place in public esteem or regard. Take a look at public. I don't care anymore what they think about me. Let's bring it closer. I'm just going to zoom out to zoom in. That's the Roman Empire in the day of John the Apostle. That little outcropping down, do you see this, Patmos, and the seven churches? That's the scale. That's their map. That's the part they occupied in the empire of the known world back in the day. All right. That is that little crop of Asia Minor zoomed up for us in the circled parts or Patmos down here at the, at the very bottom. Here's where John was. He's busy writing letters with his vision. 60 miles, and I want you to get the scale, 60 miles as the crow flies, is Ephesus. The first church to get a letter named first. In that order. And the mail ran from Ephesus and it went north to Smyrna and then to Pergamum, and see there was a Roman road, and so that's the way UPS got around that back in that time. All right, so when they brought the letter, they went that way, okay? But it's 60 miles from here to there, probably 45, 45. There's a nice little, you can get there in a day, day trip, but you see, I want you to get the scale, right? You get the scale. Guess what? That's Southern Indiana. You can see it, it's framed up over here. Look, right here, that's Louisville, and that's Evansville. And you can see Indianapolis up there. They didn't get in the Bible Belt, by the way. They cut them off, right? Okay. Those circles are the same locations on this map that they were on the other map with Patmos down here at Evansville. And this circle wandering off in a cornfield over, uh, you know, in, in Martin County. I've been there. Woo. And uh, all these other little circles. Exactly the same. Same scale. Southern Indiana, Asia Minor, 8095, AD 2021. Watch what happens next. Just a little jostle. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Washington, to Linton, to Rockville, to Cloverdale, Bloomington, Columbus, and Scottsburg. It's relevant today. 
It's as relevant for us as it was for them, and it may be even more relevant for us today than it is for them. You have a reputation for being alive. A reputation for being alive. You know, I mentioned Ray Stedman earlier. He was a wonderful evangelist, and he was a ministry partner with J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee, some of you might know, had a radio program. Well, sometimes he had a guest on there. His name was Ray Stedman. Sometimes they just traded and supported each other. He called Sardis the church of the zombies, but he called the church of America mild-mannered people meeting in mild-mannered ways, striving to be more mild-mannered. We're going to take more than a Band-Aid. That's serious. You have a reputation for being alive. They believe academically, but they're not radically sowed out. They're Sunday Christians. In the, in the American church, everything is about Jesus, but not going all out for Jesus. If it's not for Jesus then it's for nothing. It can be about Jesus all day. I can put Jesus on my shirt. I can put Jesus on my headband. And it's about Jesus, but it's not for Him. Then it means nothing. It's a soiled garment. Nominal Christianity. Bearing the name, but not wanting to bear the demands. Giving only out of their abundance and wealth, but shrinking back in a pinch. That's the American church. Ignoring the command to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse when times are tough, not when times are good. The name is on the sign. They have the bumper sticker and it's displayed proudly. And the parking lot is full on Sunday, but where was that car parked on Saturday night? American church. There's also church busyness. A church busyness that gets in the way of kingdom business. A church busyness is a churchaholic. They're well-intended. They really think they're on the right track. And so they do everything and anything about that church, but it's usually about that church building and about that church body, and it's about that church stuff. They're extremely sincere. They're warm and they're generous, but they're caught up in the details of the church building. They're so caught up in programs and funding and landscaping that they are the Marthas that miss the Master when He's ministering to the Marys. All that stuff has to get done, and I am so thankful. We all pitch in around here. We all are busy bees. We've seen it. But we're doing it for the Lord. You can know when you walk in this place. If someone is filling up the, over here the snacks and bringing them in, they're doing it for the love of God and the love of God's people. But they're not back there saying, look at me. Or they're not back there doing it now while God's Word is being preached right here and right now. They're focused on the Word of God when the Word of God is available to them. That's what Mary did. And that was what Martha needed to know. 
Lord was speaking. Nothing else matters. Only one thing is worth being concerned about. Amen. Socializing and fellowshipping. You know, there's nothing wrong with socializing. But I'll tell you with all certainty, it falls short of the Lord's view of fellowshipping. We're to love one another with a genuine love, not foster a climate of feigned fellowship that we find so prolific in the mega church that you attend today. Hi, I don't know you, but you're the best friend I've ever had. Well, you know, I just don't know how that could possibly happen. Not today. You know, there's nothing wrong with socializing, but it's not the same as fellowshipping. You know, praise the Lord, this church body exemplifies its name. We are a blessed life fellowship. The fellowship reflects the quality of the leadership. It's a direct statement from the elders and from the, from the pastors. This is the body that you've put together because you put Christ up for all to see. And when you do, all people will flock to Him. Thank God for this church. The atmosphere here is thick with the love of God and His goodness is displayed in the lives of real people. That's what a Christ community is about. Even today, even today I marvel at the fellowship here. This day I marvel at it because it always morphs and it mixes. You go see from one meeting day to another, the groups change and they mix and they mingle. It's not the same as the standoffish cliques that I was used to seeing in the church where I had an anonymous face and a fake smile. That's not this place. God's sifting the church. And He's going to bring like-minded and like-spirited people to one place. Amen. Praise the Lord. Popular message. Hey, God, I'm just getting warmed up. I just thought I'd warn you. Are you getting too comfortable? Because I'll probably get you fired up here in a bit. Popular message versus a powerful message, which I'm going to call people-pleasing versus spirit-pleasing. The church today has more than ever needs the full balanced gospel message preached and taught in its breadth and in its depth. The world's situation demands the truth today. A flowery sermonette isn't going to cut it. The popular message that everything is going to work out because you're a good person with a good heart is being exposed for the hypocrisy that it is. We need to go to the Word of God. We need to look at what Jeremiah says. He said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul said, So there is not one who does good. Everyone has gone astray. Human depravity is so deceptive that Jesus... He had to come down from his throne, become a man so that he could offer his body as a substitute to take the punishment that our sin deserves and then pin that sin to a cross in his own flesh to make my deceptive heart right with God. We can't trust our hearts until we hand them over fully to Jesus. 
If I keep a part of my heart, it's going to try to lie to me. I got to give it all away. Jesus gave all of his to me. He wants all of mine. That's a very fair trade. Amen? Amen. You know, if we hopscotch over the full balanced gospel, then watch out. Hell is a real place, and it's forever. I don't know if any of you are visitors, if you've ever been in a church, I want to tell you, there is no question Jesus himself taught. Hell is a real place, and it is forever. People aren't saved by pinning their hopes on the goodness of their own hearts. They're saved by pinning their hearts on the gospel of Jesus Christ and accepting God's free gift by faith and taking hold of it like there's no tomorrow. It's time for the sleeping giant of American church to wake up and speak the whole truth of God's word. We can save the flowery speeches for high school graduations and weddings. Okay? All right. The power of size versus the power of God. Quantity over quality. You know, we walk by faith, not by sight. Quantity looks good. The numbers look good. What am I looking with? Well, I'm looking with my human eyes, my, my natural eyes. But if I put on my spiritual eyes, I might not see anything. I don't care how big that church is. If I'm looking through my spiritual eyes, I may not see anything. It's time for, the, for us to, to, to realize what's going on. For those who hold to the strategy of let's just get them in the door, let's just increase the numbers, I would say this. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. A spirit-filled church of 40, 20, 10, or even two can do and will do more for the kingdom than a mild-mannered assembly of a thousand lukewarm believers. God can do more with one spirit-filled believer than he can with a million sleeping beauties. The American church needs to wake up. So I got news for them. Bigger isn't better. Bigger is just bigger. The size of a dead body, no matter how big it is, does not make it any less dead. That's right. Someone's following me. It's great. There's a sifting going on today. Will Graham, grandson of Billy Graham, says, unfortunately, many churches and church leaders today enjoy making provisions for the flesh. Those are the seven stars, right? They're making provisions for the flesh. They're more interested in tickling the ears of the listeners than they are in sharing the hard truths of Scripture. That's what's going on. They'd rather be popular with the world than to be found faithful in Jesus. They want the love of God without the judgment and the righteousness of God. Both are vitally important components in the same equation. They're being sifted, and their flocks are being sifted with them. I'm a siftee. I came here because of a sifting, because of a conviction, 
because in the core, in the pit, I knew I was falling asleep. And I was so close to dying. And I found... I found help. Right here. I bounced around for a while. And it was painful. And you know, it's always painful to leave a church body, or at least it should be painful painful if you if your heart's in the right place but there are times and signs when it's time that you have to let go and the sifting of god will do what's it what it's intended to do and you know as i look around i see different faces i've only been here a year but i see new faces but i see the same faces that's got to mean one thing. There's more people here now than there was before. It's sifting. And they're going to be sifted to the place where the full gospel is being taught and people are being equipped not for today and not for the next year, but for eternity. Because that's where I plan to live in eternity. Amen. So when do we know it's time to leave? I think before we do that, let's just take a look at faith and works and works and faith. Because some people would think that this might be Jesus saying your works are not complete is a, is a sermon on works. Salvation by works. That is not it. And I want to make sure we're clear on that today. Faith and works and work and faith, they go hand in hand. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. as The Apostle Paul says that. But in Ephesians 2... Uh, 8 through 10, people always want to just do the first verse, but they don't want to tell the rest of the story, right? Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. And let me see which one of these little stickies that might be. Not that one. Saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can't have the faith and the grace without the good works. It's right there in the text. I don't know why people have made such a thing about it. So you don't even have to go outside of Ephesians 2 8 through 10 to see that faith and, and works go hand in hand. But if you did need a little bit more, we find from James, James says, you know, faith without works is dead. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And then we get these. All that is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, here's the inference. Now, this is not scripture. That's why at the bottom I don't have a James or an Ephesians. It's an inference. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith are dead. They're dead works. You're stuck. Christianity 101. Hebrews 6, chapter 1. 
you've got to move on from dead works or you're not going to do anything but save your own skin. How selfish. What a waste to get to heaven and not take anyone with you. Really? Dead works. Dead works. When you're being, when you know, I mentioned before that the church is being sifted. What are the, what are the signs? What are the signs that, that it's time to let the sifting take place? Well, you've had enough of the dead giving. Go with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Dead giving. The giving in view here is over and above the individual tithe. When you ensure others know how genuine you are or generous you are, your reward at the Bema seat judgment just got cut. That was preached last week. Your reward's taken away. It said right there in the text when you sound your toot your own horn, he said. Look what I can do. That's only at the individual level. That's at the individual level. More broadly, churches that fail to teach everything on the Bible that the Bible says about giving affects the entire community. Your local body, your neighborhood, everybody. The tithe belongs in the storehouse. All of it. The full tenth. It belongs right here. But it belongs here. The whole tithe belongs here. But some like in today's church, they'll hold it back. Or they'll, they'll have the super wealthy that'll throw money out, but make sure that their name is printed in the bricks or something, right? Right? And some like Ananias and Sapphira, they may be fueled by either greed or fear, but mostly by pride. And they give the appearance of being generous and being pious. And then they withhold a portion from the local church and they reroute the funds either to the televangelist or to their own bank account. Right? Somewhere. That's not wrong to give to televangelist if you bring your whole tithe here first. That's where it goes. It goes in this basket first. Right? Dead giving. Malachi. Will man rob God? Now this is God talking. Will man rob God yet you are robbing me because you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed. And a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Churches that remain ambiguous and look the other way about proper giving bring not only a curse on their own congregation and choke the life out of it, but they bring a curse on their community 
and on their country. Even in the Bible Belt, and that was the red part on the map, they got the same problem, right? But if you give cheerfully and humbly, it's going to come back to you. Ten, a hundred, a thousandfold. That's what the Bible teaches. The distribution of rewards for believers based on the amount of faith that they put into the works that they do for God. Praise God today for that. Yes. The church is filled with dead prayer. I heard a living prayer today, Julie. She prayed a living prayer. She prayed the scripture. She prayed with praise. She prayed with power. She prayed with the right position. Follow your elders' example here. They set the right example for us. And this not just calling Julie out once here, but every elder I hear that prays, a pastorship that, that prays here, they're all following and doing the living works, not the dead ones. I'm just, I'm just helping you to recognize the dead works in case this isn't your church home, or the dead works in case maybe that's something that you've been caught up in. But what's dead prayer? Well, it's right here in the text. Let's just go ahead and look at it. Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. There's that Bema thing again. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will reward you. We don't get caught up in dead prayer. We pray first. We want to pray. Um, pray to praise. Pray to praise. When we pray to praise... Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who is and was, who is to come. You are worthy, Lord, to receive honor and glory and power, for you have created all things. By your will they exist and were created. And I'm one of those things, and I thank you. Holy, holy, holy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Pray in praise. I start my my morning praying from the Bible and praying God's praise from the hymnal. Now I have to warn you, this hymnal is 100 years old and not every hymnal is Rima. Not every, not every song in the book is Rima. But some are. I've sniffed them out and I've got them marked and I will walk and I will pray and sing those songs and I just let it flow because we need to pray to praise. Pray the Psalms, pray the prayers of the apostles, which lavish praise on Jesus. We can pray privately. We need to aim for sweet encounters with the Holy Spirit, who aims for sweet encounters with you. He's waiting for you to clear the noise so that the two of you can have a dialogue, not a monologue. You got to listen. He's talking to you, and you're talking to him. And in that conversation, he'll not deny you. But I can tell you, you don't need the king's English anymore. When you seek him out, he's going to talk into your heart. 
And the things that come out of you, they may be groans. You may be laughing. You may be weeping. But before long, the Spirit will give you a new language. And you will be transformed. Just let it flow. Pray in tongues when it comes. It doesn't have to be in public. It doesn't have to be up here. It can just be in your dark little room or it can be in a bright little breakfast nook and it's just the two of you and he will come to you if you seek him and he will not disappoint you. But once you encounter the supernatural reality of Holy Spirit like that, the things of this world grow so strangely dim and the fruit of the Spirit and the love and the joy and the peace and the confidence the patience and every good thing will manifest in your life. You will be radically transformed and you'll be giving God hand claps and shouts, even if it's just you and Him and nobody else. And that's what He wants from you. That's your sincere and genuine worship. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It has everything to do with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We... Pray positionally. That's what I hear around here. I love it. Positionally. Yes, God, our Father, Creator. I'm the created. You're the Creator. That's my position. But guess what else? God is my Father. Now I can pray from the position of a son. And that changes some things for me. I can pray positionally because of Jesus and we are righteous and we are children and heirs and we are princes and we are princesses and we are royalty wrapped in robes of righteousness purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and anything that we ask in his name, God will not deny. Dear Father, you are my God. And Jesus, I thank you for giving me your authority. I claim it. It's mine. Yes, I declare that I am healed and I am whole in your name. I thank you that my hands are instruments for healing. I thank you, Lord, that you're giving me all power and authority that I tread on demons. Poison won't harm me. My house is secure because my house is patrolled by angels. Yes, the Lord is my shepherd. I care not for anything. He who puts his trust in the Most High in the secret place, he dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I'm under his wing, just like the song said. I'm secure in the blood of Jesus Christ. I have authority and I pray positionally from that authority. But I also want to pray passionately. Paul implores us over and over. He says, pray for all the saints. Pray. Pray for the saints that are under persecution. Pray for the ones in Afghanistan. It's okay to get passionate. God's passionate. David was passionate. Paul was passionate. Jesus was passionate. They're imprecatory psalms. Pastor used one today. Psalm 69. Let their tent be desolate. Break the arm of the wicked for what they've done to your child, Lord. Don't let them dishonor your name anymore. Bring down the fire and bring down the lightning on them. Break the back of the Taliban. Dismantle this media. 
And do it all, Lord. Don't let them mock you anymore. Yes, Lord. Praise God today. I'm going to pray with passion. I'm not going to have a dead prayer. Dead prayer never got me anywhere. Dead sermons. Oh, boy. Now that's a sign of a, of a dying church. It was a dead sermon. Believe me, folks, this is serious. I would never make fun of a fellow preacher. I'm never going to put them down. They miss the mark sometimes. I miss the mark sometimes. Right? But I, I just, there's a dead sermon. Paul talks about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. He says what? He says how they get off on the wrong tr track because they start to put their trust in their own human uh, rationale, let's say. I don't think they're, well, bad intended, right? But Paul says, because this must have been going around in Greece, and I think if you look at their culture, there was a lot of gassy speeches going around from the Greeks that's called uh, Hellenistic philosophy. But I'm going to spare you that because that, that would be gassy from me. I didn't come here to talk about philosophy. I came here to talk about the Lord and the Lord's Word. Paul said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Right? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do you see the difference between a dead sermon and a living sermon? Isn't that ironic that, he, that the living sermon talks about the death, the necessary death of Jesus, and the dead sermon is probably talking about how your life can get better by thinking good thoughts and having a good heart. There's a dead sermon. But you know, even, even worse than a dead sermon is a deadly sermon. Some sermons are deadly. Paul said in 2 Timothy, they would hire teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They don't want to hear that there's eternal judgment. So they're going to hire someone to just say, you know, I, I know there's an eternal judgment, but okay, I'm not going to make a big deal about it. It's deadly. That's a deadly sermon. It's an easy message. It's a watered-down gospel. It's claiming eternal rewards just for being well-intended and for thinking nice thoughts. It's seasoned and marinated message, and it's made palatable for all the so sensitive and fragile psyches that we've managed to produce in America today. How I would hurt somebody's feelings, yes, if it would save them from an eternal punishment, I would be more than happy to hurt your feelings to save you from death and to save you from eternity apart from God. I want you to hurt my feelings the same way that I'd be willing to hurt yours. Not because I have a hard heart. It's because I have a Jesus heart. I gave my heart to Jesus. I don't even have mine anymore. I didn't like it. I like the one that Jesus gave me. Hebrews 4.12, you know, sometimes we need a set of shears for pruning, and that hurts. Other times we need a sword to penetrate and to divide to the soul and spirit. 
The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. When the word of the when the sword of the Spirit is unsheathed, like a like a short sword should be, and when it's used the way that it's intended to use, somebody is going to get cut, poked, or pricked every time. Every time. Was that preacher talking to me? Yeah. Did he mean to be? No, maybe not. He doesn't know. I don't know. I can't read your minds. God didn't give me an image you bring going to preach today, but really you're going to be preaching, you know, make sure that they get it. Well, nothing like that. Nothing. God gives me the word that I, I beg him to give me. I don't even have to beg. I just get on my knees. Lord, give me this word. Well, I just am I, I'm open up for you. And if you've got to cut me with that sword, go ahead. I can tell you right now in this sermon and almost every one, I'll get cut. I'll get cut looking at the word to come, come to preach here in front of you. And it cut me first. I was in my office last night, tears coming down my face because I got cut. But I got healed again. Jesus healed me and I'm good for it. Right. But we, got, we can't be afraid to use a sword. That's what a sword is for. I'd rather be cut with a sword every day than experience the torment of an eternal flame that I couldn't escape from. For nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is exposed before His eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We can't water down the message. A deadly sermon leaves out the reality of hell. Jesus plainly teaches hell. It's a real place. It's prepared for the devil. He doesn't want you to go there. But when you give him no choice, that's the only alternative we've got. God is holy. And His holiness demands a judgment. Jesus already took your beating. What are you waiting for? There's no excuse to be lost. Jesus took it for you. It's a real place. And we need to get on with the business and inform people. Well, today is today. It's a place that's forever. And it, uh, if that's not enough to bring an end to the spiritual coma that American church is in, to beg for more of the Holy Spirit, to light the fire of compassion with all urgency in you and me, to get on with the kingdom work, to speak Jesus, for each of us to walk and to talk and to eat, breathe and sleep, the full balanced gospel to an unbelieving world or even to a nominal Christian at the risk of offending them. I want to stress, I don't want to offend anybody. God wants to save you. And Jesus was far from politically correct in His day. He doesn't expect you to be politically correct in your day. The full gospel is the only light in the dark and decaying world around us only the gospel served straight up can turn things around. Not government, not a program, not a policy, not the but only the power of God seen through the lives of transformed people living the word. For the word of God to fulfill the commission is to live, speak, preach, and demonstrate the gospel impact in your life when you leave this building. We can all high-five in here, but we need to be out there finding other people to high-five. Right? That's what we got to do.
Yes, it's serious business. And Jesus entrusts us with it. We have to break the veil of dead works. And we have to get on with it. Do not quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Where's my wife? There she is. Spring 2018 changed my life forever. I was dying. My light, my spiritual light was going out. I was in a comfortable position, comfortable income. Found a nice situation for myself. My lifeline was this. I read the scriptures every day, but I had doused the flame and I knew it. Every day I knew it. I was not worshiping with my whole heart. I wasn't praising with my whole heart. I was a dead prayer, a dead giver. I was listening to dead messages and denying the power of the Holy Spirit right here. I, I was reading First Thessalonians as I would because I'm one of those that I have to do something right up to the minute that I go to sleep because when I... If I don't, I, I'll just lay there awake. But if I use up all my energy and then it's like, uh-oh, I close the book and turn off the light, then I'm, I'm asleep. And I was close to that. And I thought, you know, Paul, I've heard these endings of yours so many times. I'm just about done. But then something just wouldn't let me or someone. And so it's like, no, read the whole thing all the way to the end and then go to sleep. And I got right there and I absolutely felt something like the, the, the jolt of a 9-volt battery. If you've ever t touched your tongue on a 9-volt battery, it'll tingle. That went through my entire body, head to toe. And I was like that. And I knew immediately what happened to me. My life hasn't been the same since that minute. I... Samantha, the very next morning, you talk about God confirming with signs. We get up at the first conversation we have. I don't even so much as get out my thought that we need to do something. She's talking to me. I met somebody. You can see the light of the Lord in them. Oh, okay. And then click, 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 click. Three days later, I'm in Washington, D.C. on a business dinner. The three people that ended up at the table, all from Columbus, all Pentecostal. And I'm sitting there with my nearly dead spirit. One of them mentioned the name of the person that my wife mentioned to me the day before I got on my flight. I'm in the nation's capital. I'm hearing about someone that my wife had just met. And so on and on and on, it was a wooing and elaboration. Three years, three and a half years later, I don't, I know who I was. I don't understand my rationale. I don't even care. I don't even want to figure out what, what my rationale was. I know who I am today. And I remember that guy then, but I don't recognize much. And, and I think that Samantha would say the same, not about me, but about her own self as well, because I have just... Being transformed is one thing, but when your mate in this world is being transformed by your side at an even greater acceleration than the one you're going through, 
That is the power of God demonstrated in the lives of people. And I am just honored to this day that that has been a privilege for me to encounter. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Because no matter how things may appear, whether a church body or a human body, the Holy Spirit can bring it to life. And you're no exception. So now we're on the road to, the, to revival. So on the road to revival, um, we need to go back. The road to revival actually takes you back to the beginning. So for those of you who fill in the bulletin, now's your chance to get a church bulletin blank bingo. Because <laughs> I've got like 80% of them lined up for you here. So this is, this is the heart of it. And you can see we're, we're getting close to bringing it to a close. On the road to revival, you've got to go back. I use the New Living Translation here because it's, it, to me, it, the, the ESV can be a little wooden. It's very literal. But NLT in this case says, go back to what you heard and believed at first, Christianity 101, right? And hold to it firmly and then get on with it, right? Get that foundation the pastor's been talking about. Jesus is the head of the church. Who's the head of the church? Jesus is the head of the church. Who gives the Holy Spirit? Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, I'm going to baptize you with water. But Jesus said, I'm going to baptize you with fire. Right? Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. He leaned in on his apostles in the night before he was crucified. He leaned in on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know who else would give it if Jesus didn't. It seems like he has the sevenfold spirit of God in his hands. And he gives the Holy Spirit for this reason. The Holy Spirit is the life force of the church body and the life force of your body. It's only by grace that any of us are up and animated and walking and doing anything. It's only by God's will. The Holy Spirit is the life force of the church body. The Holy Spirit is the life force of your body. What does Jesus say to do? He says, repent and turn to me again. Thank God it's not too late. You're there. You're, you're on life support. Jesus walks in and says, repent and turn to me and you can just unplug that stuff and we can all go out right now. We can go dine together right now. Just repent and turn to me. What are you going to do? Well, repent is a change of heart that's backed up by, you know this, backed up by a change of behavior, a change of actions. Absolutely. So we got to change our heart and then follow through with the change of action. So resurrection time on the, road to res on the road to revival is repentance. And Jesus expects that those actions that we take up are not dead works. He wants us to take up living works. John 15, 8 through, 1 through 8. 
I think that's my green ribbon. I knew that would come in handy. Okay, John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You notice now he cleaned the soil off your garment? Already you're clean, he said. So he's, he's willing, right? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. You can't be detached from the head, right? Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Dead works. Dead works. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown in the fire. Yeah, once again, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So prove, prove, show me that you're my disciple. How would I do that? Jesus expects me to prove I'm his disciple. Not just say it. He wants me to prove it. And the way I prove that is through good living and lasting works. And I will say, last but not least, Jesus rewards good works. He's not going to let you go unrewarded. Right? Jesus is not going to let you go unrewarded. He said that if you... If anyone confesses his name um, before men, he will confess your name. But he also said um, in Matthew 25 that there's a judgment going on here in Matthew 25. And in verse 34, we see that he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Good and lasting fruit. All right. Those who overcome. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will thus will, will be clothed thus in white. So, um, white is the symbol of redemption. And there are some that haven't soiled their clothes, and they're unsoiled. And that's great. Are you? Are you here today? Are you unsoiled, spirit-filled believer? God sees you. And he has a pure white gleaming robe for you. As pastor elucidated last week so well, Jesus vouchsafed your reward. He says you are worthy, but you already know, you already know this, not because of anything you've done, but rather because you place your trust fully in him. You demonstrate with your life that Jesus is the Lord of your life. 
You have a reward. You're dressed in white. Praise God. But maybe, maybe you're here today and you're one that's been drifting in and out. Drifting in and out of sleep. Not living in power of the Spirit. Or you may be a sleeper in a dying church. Or maybe you're a part of a living body, church body like this one, but individually you're languishing. I have good news for you. You can be made worthy. You need only to look up. Jesus is still holding out to you, not the problem, the solution. He's got the sevenfold spirit in his hand, right? He's offering it to you. You need only look up and you can be made worthy now. I never was a good finger snapper. So nobody's going to help me. All right. You can be made good today. That's my point. You need only look up and be good. Jesus says that I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. Now, there's a lot implied there, right? There's something implied there. I don't even want to risk it, right? So the only way that I'm going, I'm, I don't want my name out, blotted out. Jesus said for those that are washed, their name will never be blotted out. What should we do? We should just be washed because Jesus will not blot out your name. The blood of Jesus will blot out your sin and then your name remains, right? So you can do it. So just if you're here, all I want you to do, think about where you are in relation to this message today. And if you're off kilter, if you feel spirit, spiritually weak, or you're maybe not a part of this church body, but your other body needs an infusion. You can be that infusion today, right? You can be that infusion today. But just think about it. If you want to close your eyes, you can. But you can be made clean, and your soiled garments can be white as snow right now. I'm going to pray from the heart of David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, I know my transgressions and my sin. It's before me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. A broken and a contrite heart, a rended heart, God will not despise but rather God will mend. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He, he loves you with an immeasurable and pure love, and there's no garment that's too soiled for the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their clothes, they are worthy. You can be worthy too. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says it four times in the book of Revelation. Four times. He wants your attention. Later, in the book of, 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 of Revelation chapter 3, just later on, a little down the road from here, 
Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. I don't know about you, but some of the most startling moments in my life is being sound asleep and bang, 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 someone's knocking on the door. Well, this time you look out and it's Jesus. You know, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Jesus is knocking on the door of every heart that hasn't been surrendered to Him. And if that's your heart today, you can open that door and you will not be disappointed. He will come in and He will dine with you. That's close fellowship. And He can even lean in on you and breathe on you and say, receive the Holy Spirit and you'll be awake and you'll be alive for the, forevermore. Well, thank you for your attention today. Pastor, thank you for allowing me to preach God's Word at this beautiful fellowship that you've made here.